Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Yeah, Mark 15, verse 1. Verses, I think, will be up on the screen. Yeah, they will. Awesome. Uh, verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus. They led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, be, aloud began to ask him to do just as he had done for them, had he, had he, rather how he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Tells us, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. As he was coming out of the country and passing by, they compelled him to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With them they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, but himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. 
Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. He cried out, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Uh, This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Father, thank you for the gift of your word. We say that together tonight sincerely, but more so, it's the gift of your son, whom we read about here in your word. Um, Lord, the mystery, the length, the depth, the height, the width of your love. God, we know that we could never come to the end of an understanding about what's happening here in the verses we just read, but Lord, we're here tonight because we believe that you do want to bring us a little further. God, you know there are parts of our lives that the cross needs to come to bear. That there are parts of our lives that the cross hasn't touched yet. And so tonight, Lord, would you open our eyes to see in in fresh ways what Good Friday means. God, would you open our hearts to even though we can can close them off to you unknowingly, God, would you open up our hearts? Would you make us soft in our hearts tonight as we personalize what you've done for us, as we see the cross as something that even applies to us today, right here and right now? So, Father, I ask that you would um, help us Just come further tonight. Lord, I pray you'd use me right now, even with the short time I have to share some words. Holy Spirit, fill me. I pray that you would use me for your agenda tonight, and uh, you would lead us further into you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, I thought of a bit of a title for tonight, and and especially with it leading into Easter Sunday, of course, we have so much work that goes into the resurrection of Jesus. But as I was meditating on what is the the focus that God would have for us here tonight, uh, looking at this account of Jesus' crucifixion for this moment we have together, um, I I thought of something rather simple. Um, It was this idea about the purpose of Jesus' death, the purpose of his death. Uh, This Sunday, Easter Sunday, we were looking at the power of his resurrection. But before we get there, the purpose of his death. And and that's what we just read here in this passage. We read about the death, the flatlining, heart-stopping, last breath-having death of Jesus. I I mean, his real death, he really died. Verse 37 says that he breathed his last And we're exploring, the heart of this is to explore what is the purpose of his death. Or to ask it another way, what exactly is happening here? Uh, We all have some general understanding about the cross, about maybe redemption, about how the cross is central to our salvation. But what does that even mean? I mean, how is this 
first century Jew, this rabbi, this teacher, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, how is his betrayal, trial, and execution, how is that really relevant to you and to me? That didn't sound good. Hope everyone's all right back there. Um, How is that relevant? What does it exactly mean? Now, listen, uh, I grew up in church. Uh, my, my whole life, as far as far back as I can remember, I, I remember my some of my early homes that we were in, and I remember church. They're, they're, they're one and the same to me. Uh, and, and throughout my time in, in church, there's been so many different ideas about what's happening at the cross that have really shaped my understanding of my salvation, that have shaped my, my appreciation for the cross. And some of those ideas were really helpful. They're ideas that have have really stuck with me to this day that have shaped how I understand God. Um, Some of those ideas were, let's say, not as helpful. There's this good old thing that can be done in a wrong way, but should be done in a right way called deconstruction, where you begin to sort of tear down brick by brick all the assumptions that you have about the Lord that have just kind of been caught by you, but maybe never truly discovered by you personally. Now, there's a healthy and an unhealthy way to do that. Um, Jesus models that. Uh, Jesus models um, this kind of three-step process in, in spirituality where you have construction, that's step one, which is like all the things you understand and know about God and believe about life and him and, and everything in yourself. Like you have a constructed theology right now, whether you, uh, you know, consider yourself a theologian or not, you are. <laughs> you have a view of God. You have a constructed idea about so many different things. But there's this healthy thing that can happen that Jesus did, even in his time, where he would say to the religious of the day, he would say, you have heard it said, right? You've heard it said. It's been constructed in your religious circles, these ideas. But then he would say this, what? But I say to you. Now, that's key there. Jesus is obviously hinting at the fact that you've got to deconstruct some of the things that you've heard. But the whole point of deconstructing is for reconstructing. It's for building up a proper idea of what's true about God. Are you with me? Today, it's really popular to deconstruct and just kind of sit there in the pile of the rubble. Like just angry at your past, angry at your upbringing in church, angry at everything that has the like, like, and I, I had been in a place like this in my life where I was so disenfranchised and disillusioned with religion that like just seeing like a Jesus fish on a car would get me angry, you know? Like, how dare they? You know, they're not Christians. Look how they drive, right? So there's this, like, dangerous sort of posture we can take to where we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Where we sit in a pile of this deconstructed mess, and we end up with some, like, maybe progressive idea or whatever it may be, which is usually just a stop on the way to giving up on everything altogether, and Jesus leads us, and he's, let, he's done this in my life, especially when it comes to the cross, to a deconstructive that led to a reconstructive process um, that I'm still, I'm still on. I, I don't say that to say I have fully reconstructed everything that I know about everything, and, and I'm there, and come learn from me, you know? Um, obviously, there's some extent to where you're learning from me right now, so that sounds kind of ironic, but uh, you get the heart behind that, I hope. Um, now, certainly with the cross, you know, there were, like I said, growing up, there were some constructive ideas about the cross. Some were helpful. Some, not as much. 
Uh, There's one specific illustration that I was uh, taught and told as a kid in youth group about the cross that I want to unpack a little bit tonight. And you guys get to join me as I kind of take apart uh, some destructive illustrations from youth group in my childhood. Uh, This will be fun. But uh, it, you might have heard this story before that, that exists to in some way explain what's going on at the cross. So what's going on here in Mark 16? And it's a story, an allegory rather, called the bridge operator's son. Have you heard this before? You know, I'm not going to go through the full thing. I'll, I'll give you the summary of it. There's, like, there's actually, I think, a movie, like a short film made on it called The Bridge. Uh, But essentially, here's the idea. It's this great illustration of this man who's a bridge operator over the Mississippi River. Uh, And his job as the bridge operator is to uh, control and and coordinate the opening and closing of a swing bridge, which looks a little bit like this, a little maybe more foreign to us. But it's a bridge that would be parallel with the banks of the river for boats to come by, and then it would be perpendicular to allow the railroad to go by. Well, uh, one day, the bridge operator, who's a picture of God the Father, he brings his son with him to work, which, of course, is a picture of Jesus. We know that. Jesus goes to work with with his dad, and it's an eight-year-old son in the story. And and on his lunch break, the father, he doesn't realize how much time has passed until he hears the whistling of a train coming. He's forgotten to put the bridge back in its proper place. And this is is a train filled with, with hundreds of people. All sorts of different passengers making their way right to the edge of that railroad. And because the bridge is open, they are going to die. They're going to perish. And so the bridge operator, at the perfect moment, he grabs the lever. And he has just enough time to pull the lever so that all those passengers will be saved. And as he goes to pull the lever, he looks down over the edge of his tower and he sees his son. His son is playing in the gears of the bridge. And this father, he's left with this choice. He's left with two options. Option number one, save my son. Don't pull the lever and kill the passengers. Or rather, let them die. Option number two is to pull the lever Save the passengers, but crush his son. Sacrifice his son. And the way that the story goes is the father, he, it's very emotional. It builds up. It's like, oh my gosh, right? And he pulls the lever. He makes this sacrificial move. And he grieves. And the train goes by. And he just sees all these people having no idea as to what just happened passing over the river. Now. Let's deconstruct a little bit. Um, There are, I think, some really helpful sentiments in that illustration. Uh, Sentiments about sacrifice, sentiments about the father and and a son. That resonates with me as a dad of a son. Um, But for every helpful sentiment, there are like eight unhelpful heresies. If if there's one main issue that I have with this idea about what's happening here in Mark 16, this idea of the cross, if there's one theme that kind of runs through that whole illustration, it's the nature of the coincidence and the happenstance of this problem. 
Everybody in this story is passive, aren't they? You know, the father's just showing up to work one day. The son's just playing in the gears. You know? like, what are you doing in the gears, you know? And, and everyone on the train, they're just kind of like making their way to work. Making, I had that song I'm making my way downtown. I wish I didn't have that. But, you know, they're just kind of, just hap- everything's just kind of happening in the story. And it can be really easy maybe to look at Mark 15 in the same way. This is just kind of happening. The father just so happens to react and sacrifice his son. The reason why that's such a significant issue, it's issue enough for me to tell that whole story, to talk about how wrong it is, is because if there's anything central to the heart of what's happened here in Mark 16, it's the complete opposite of it being a coincidence. It's the complete opposite of it being just happenstance. And let's look at each Example of this. First, I want to talk about the idea of the innocence of the passengers. That's the first assumption here. They're they're, they're just on the train, right? The idea of this illustration in the story is that the passengers who are being saved by the father's sacrifice with the son, you see, they're innocent and they're completely disconnected from the danger that's ahead. It's not their fault. They're just going about their day, going about their life. In fact, it's someone else's fault. Actually, in the story, it's, it's God's fault. Isn't that interesting? So come on, youth group teachers. All right. The innocence of the passengers. You know, I, I think we can think this way about the cross. I think we can have a view of the cross that sort of sees the cross as something that's, you know... Uh, Here's the way I thought of it. It's like we can think of the cross as um, God fixing something that someone else broke. Like someone else caused this. That guy Adam, right? Isn't that his name? Ate that stupid fruit. Come on. Like I like fruit and all, but I wouldn't have done that. That's how we can think. We, we tend to think of, of, of sort of others as being the provokers of the problem, and we can see ourselves as innocent bystanders, passive people who are in this mindset actually not agreeing with Scripture. Now, the Bible would say the complete opposite. Um, in the illustration given, you have a contradiction to what Paul says in Romans 3.9. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Who's they? Uh, th- this is Paul speaking to Jews that see themselves a little bit better than the Gentiles because they have religious privilege. And this is, you could really apply this to anyone. Are you better than anyone? Is anyone better than anyone? Paul would say, not at all. Not at all. For we have all previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. You know, pick your, your group of people. And pick their counter group of people. Whether it's social, whether it's political, we have charged both, both Republicans and Democrats that they're all under sin. That's the idea, right? This is the nature of humanity. He goes on to say, there is none righteous, no, not one, in verse 10. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. This is God doing a survey of humanity. And his findings are consistent. There's sinfulness. There's not innocence. There's rebellion, there's iniquity, there's sin. Their throat, notice this, their throat is an open tomb. 
With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps, I don't even know what that is, it doesn't sound good though, is under their lips. It says their whole mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth, here's, what, here's where Paul's like, every mouth needs to be stopped defending themselves. And before Jesus, all the world becomes guilty before God. There's, there's, there's no person that by the deeds of the law can make themselves right in God's sight, for by the law is just the knowledge of sin. And you might have seen this verse before that follows, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the diagnosis. This is the condition of the passengers, guilty in their sins. And it's not like this minor issue. It's not like oopsie-daisy sin. You know, the way that Paul describes sin, it's not like, oh, I stole a cookie from the cookie jar. I'm going to get a consequence. Paul is describing an understanding of humanity that, you know, um, is greater often than humanity's own understanding of itself. None of us would like to think of ourselves in that list of, of failures and shortcomings. In fact, when we read this, it's really easy to apply this to someone else, maybe. Um, which I've heard before, that's actually the definition of what self-righteousness is which, is, which is just an, it's unrighteousness dressed up in church clothes. We know that, right? That's, that's self-righteousness. And the, and the best example of self-righteousness is you hear a sermon on unrighteousness and you think about someone else. You apply, you go, they need to hear this. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. All right. But it's the same root issue. Um, that, that's the first problem that I think we, we have here. Uh, thinking about the cross as if it's some, it's God fixing, like these, in, we're innocent passengers. God is fixing a, a problem. God is, is fixing something that someone else broke. And we don't see ourselves enough as the problem. And this applies to a lot of different arenas, whether it's the world we're in right now, the political sphere. But uh, Romans says that, um, we are guilty before God. And I want you to see what Isaiah says then about the cross. Isaiah, prophesying the Messiah's sacrifice on the cross, said this about Jesus. It said, Jesus, he is despised and rejected by men. We just sang this. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, star, our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. I want you to see this. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities, my iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, this, I think, is the first step to really understanding what's going on here in this story. You are not and I am not a passive bystander. 
that just so happens to be in harm's way because of something else that somebody else did. The scriptures tell us uh, this truth that we sing in a song that we will at the end called How Deep the Father's Love. We sing this incredible lyric. It says, humbly, it says that it was my sin. It was my sin, we should say. Emphasize that. It was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The, the idea here is um, we should see ourselves in the story, not as just somebody looking on at the crucifixion, but let's go back. We should see our resemblance with Adam. Okay. We should see our resemblance in the rebellion of Adam when we rebel. We should see our resemblance. When we look at Israel, we're like, oh man, those people, Israel, they could not follow God for anything. Can you step back for a second and humbly acknowledge the resemblance that has to your life when you fall short and you don't follow him? We could look at a story like this and wonder how a guy like Pilate can be so indifferent to someone that he speculates is of God. And maybe we, if we were honest, can see the resemblance to our own indifference with Jesus. How indifferent can we be with his plans for our lives, for his heart for us? We look at the people and their unwillingness to have Jesus be their king and sort of to mock that idea. And how many times has my own life and the way I've lived my life said to God, I don't want you to rule over me. Do you see your face in the crowd? Do you see yourself as Barabbas? Who's guilty and deserves death instead of Jesus? Uh, C.J. Mahaney kind of wraps this all up with an incredible quote. Here's what he says. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we must first, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. That's profound. Before I see the cross as something done for me, glory, hallelujah, jubilee, thank you God for the cross, I must first share in the guilt that it's my sin that put him there. For the wages of sin is death. And the other issue we have, of course, with this incredible allegory from my childhood that I'm working out right now in therapy with you guys is the ignorance of the father. Isn't that another interesting thing in that story? The father just so happens to go to work and he's like, oh no, I took too long of a lunch break. I was watching the game on my iPhone or something. This idea of the ignorance of the Father. And, and, and listen, we can feel that way about God a lot, can't we? God doesn't know what's happening to me. God, God, is, God is, is, you know, spun for a loop because of coronavirus or this or that or the other. We, we can have this very, we don't realize it, but it's a very small and low view of God. It's kind of like a Homer Simpson God the Father. Like, oops, I forgot to do the drawbridge. And, and what a sad way to live in regards to our Father in heaven, right? And that's how this kind of illustration paints this, the ignorance of this, of this dad. You know, even Jesus, let's, let's be reminded, Jesus was fully God and fully man. He wasn't 99% man, 1% God. He wasn't 99% God and 1% man when he's dying. 
He wasn't, let's get even more theological, he wasn't 50% God, 50% man. He was the hypostatic union, 100% God, 100% man. How does he do that? I don't know. I'll ask him when I see him. But, but he's fully God, yet he's also fully man. So in his divinity, he's going to the cross. But in his humanity, there is this cry that Jesus has saying, God, where are you? Quoting right from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I just want you to know you have permission to pray that. Okay. Um, even the Son of God didn't button up his perfect theology when he was suffering. But he came to God as he was, secure in his sonship. Said, Lord, this is what I'm feeling. It feels like you don't know what's going on. That's the Son of God for you. And that's even the, the wrong idea that this picture portrays. But it's actually the book of Acts that paints a completely different picture of the Father at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter is preaching. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He says, This Jesus... Notice this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Check that out. You crucified. I love that he doesn't like say, therefore, you're fine. It was God's plan. He's like, you crucified. Still guilty of that. And you and was killed by the hands of lawless men. How a perfect, sovereign God is able to work together with human responsibility. Only God perfectly understands uh, this dichotomy, uh, men throughout the ages have, try, have tried their best to make sense of it with eight points and three points and five points and this, that, and the other. Um, I think the best way to understand how God does this kind of stuff where he works good through evil uh, is this idea that it's like God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. They're two parallel lines that only meet at the mind of God. Whenever I try to intersect them, I'm usually compromising something. Does that make sense? But, but you have this theological truth right here. You have human responsibility held responsible. Every man will be held responsible for their sin, accountable to God for their sins. Yet God's sovereignty, this wasn't unknown to the father. The father's not ignorant. The father's not late. He's not going long on his run, lunch break. But Christ here, though the Father feels far, the Father is in control. The Father is sovereign. The Father is enthroned. The Father has a definite plan. The Father knows something before it happens. And that's what we have, a completely different picture of the Father, not ignorant, but involved. And lastly, where this would obviously end is the Son. There's really wrong idea in that illustration is that it portrays this inactiveness of the son. The son is, is not really an active member of the story. He doesn't even have a say, does he? You know, he, he, he's playing with the gears. Sorry, buddy, you're playing with the gears. You don't, you don't have a say in the matter. It's just kind of up to God to make this decision really jacked up Trinitarian theology there. But it's, it's, it's this portrayal of Jesus that actually a lot of us can have about the gospel. We can think almost like uh, Jesus is God's victim for sin. God had to kill Jesus to save us. Um, and all you need to do to fix that is just read a little bit of your Bible. Not even too much. Just 10 chapters into the gospel of John, which is usually where people should start. 
You get 10 chapters in and Jesus says this, therefore my father loves me because I, what? I lay down my life that I may take it again. You see the father and the son working in unison here. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. That's what's happening here in this, in this account. I have power to lay it down and to take it again. Okay? Um, I think there was a book on this, Killing Jesus. That's the idea. Jesus is being killed. Now, there is this real reality that like people are responsible for that. But Jesus is like, no, no, no. I'm giving up my life here. The Father isn't taking me out. It's not like I'm not a victim to Pilate here. I am accomplishing the purpose of eternity. It's the Lamb's, it's the book of the blood of the Lamb that was written before the foundations of the world. This is an eternal purpose that Christ is fulfilling. And this, was, this was being missed even by those that were, reread it there, that, that were crucifying him. Isn't it interesting? One of the ways that they were mocking him is they were saying, well, if you're, if you're God and you're all powerful, and they remember, you said you have the power, right? You have the power over your life, life or death. Well, where's that power now? There you are on the cross. If you're so powerful, Jesus, why don't you come down? And what they were missing was the greater power that was being displayed right before them. Any fool could use and wield their power for selfish gain, but what about the power of love? that Jesus was displaying right before their very eyes. The greater power was not in Jesus removing himself. The greater power was in Jesus remaining upon the cross. Power under control, meekness, displaying that incredible power. Um, you know, here in, in verse 37, it says Jesus breathed his last. I like how the Gospel of John says it. It says that he gave up his spirit. I think that's important to know. Like, Jesus... He comes to a point where he's like, okay, it is finished. He gives himself up. Now, I, I need to kind of give a counter comment here. All of this isn't to say that Jesus is going to the cross calm, cool, and collected. He's not enjoying what's happening. He's human. There's a mystery to this. I think the best way to understand sort of uh, the, the mystery of what's going on here is Hebrews 12, 2. It says, look to Jesus, the author, author and finisher of our faith, who for the, notice this, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Isn't that a great way to understand that? So, so Jesus isn't having his life taken from him. He's laying his life down. But it doesn't say that he's enjoying the cross, it's for the joy set before him, the purpose that he's laying his life down for, that he's enduring the cross. There's suffering. The power Jesus has over his own life does not diminish the suffering that he willingly went through for sin. If there's one central point that I want to make about this flawed youth group theology, about the inactiveness of the son, here's what I want you to take away. The cross didn't happen to Jesus. Jesus happened to the cross. The cross wasn't happening to Jesus. Jesus was happening to the cross along with the Father for the joy set before him, accomplishing the purpose that God had for him. So what do you have? You have some guilty sinners. You have in that also an involved, all-knowing father with purposes 
united with the Son, who's fully God and fully man, who will wrestle with the cross and say, if there's any other way, please, but not my will, your will be done. And the Son will go, and with his own power, his power, he will give up his life. He will give up his spirit for the joy set before him. He will endure the cross. What was it that Jesus then was accomplishing? You know, obviously there are books upon books upon books upon books and sermons upon sermons. Really, a sermon's not a sermon unless it's about the cross to some extent. Let me say that. Otherwise, it's just a TED Talk, okay? But, but, but really, expounding on the cross, I mean, this is what the church has sought to explore throughout the centuries, and there's just so much. But I want to just narrow down, write these three truths down today. I'm not even going to break them down uh, um, completely, but just want you to think about these three things as we close out today. I invite the band to come up. Jesus, as he was actively laying down his life on the cross, just a good place to start in understanding what was happening his first redemption was happening. Through Jesus here on the cross, through the purpose of the Father, God was leading his son. Jesus himself was giving up his life to redeem sinners. The word redeem means to buy back, to purchase back to him through sin and death. The problem with us and our need for redemption is we do not possess in and of ourselves, even collectively, the currency to buy our redemption. We don't have enough. I take my kids to Chuck E. Cheese every now and then when it's not a pandemic as crazy as it's been. That's the, that's, if you want it, go there, okay? But um, <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese. Um, and you play the, these games where you, have, you get these tickets and you go up and, and, and you remember that as a kid, whether it's boomers or I used to go to Wilts, Wilt Chamberlain's back in the day. You never have enough for what you really want, Right? It's like, oh my gosh, I've been playing games, I'm sweating, my thumbs are broken, it's been two hours, here, a Tootsie Roll. It's like, it's like, thank you. I'll be back next week, unfortunately. You know. but, but that puny display of not having enough currency is the truth of the human condition. I, I really mean that. All of our even collective good things don't even come close to measuring up to buying the redemption we need. The truth is we have sinned against a holy God. There is no one doing that on our own. There is just what we have, separation from him, sin and death. For the wages of sin is death. Scripture tells us about Jesus that we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Jesus paid it all. You've heard it said so many times, but it's still true. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe. Because we owed a debt that we could never pay. He paid our debt. He paid for our redemption. He paid for our forgiveness. We weren't redeemed with earthly things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus was shed in such a way that it purchased you from death and cleanses you from your sin. Redemption. Redemption through his blood. And even every part of, of his body that was bleeding, you think about the blood of Jesus that flowed from his head, 
which cleanses our thoughts, that, that, that flowed from his back, which, which cleanses us when we've turned our back on him. You could just go through it, our feet, where we've gone, where, when we've gone where we shouldn't, when we've touched what we shouldn't. Redemption through his blood, forgiveness. It's more than that, though. It's also restoration. We can't have a limited view of salvation. Salvation, the cross, for those who believe by faith, it's not just what you're saved from. The gospel is what we're saved to. It's who we're saved to. It's not just redemption from sin and death, but it's restoration to God. See, through the cross, Colossians says that God through Christ was reconcile all, reconciling all things to himself so that even us who were far from God, we were. We have been brought near through the blood of the cross. You are closer to God than you could ever hope through Jesus. You can't, get, you can't get any closer. I love that church camp answer. I used to ask kids on the way to church camp, what do you want to get out of this week? I want to get closer to God. You can't get any closer than the restoration that Jesus has given you. You can't get any closer than being his child. You have been brought back into relationship and fellowship with God through the Son. You have access to a heavenly Father. Lastly, revelation. Um, on the cross, God is redeeming. On the cross, God is restoring. He's doing a lot of other things too. But let's end with this idea that on the cross, God is also revealing. He's going to convince us beyond the shadow of any doubt that he is who he says he is, which is a God of tremendous love, a, a God of justice towards sin, Romans tells us that the cross shows God's justice, that God is serious about injustice, that God is serious about your sin, about my sin, about their sin. I know they might not even be here to take ownership for the sins that they've committed against you. But the cross shows us that God is just towards sin. But he is loving and patient and gracious towards sinners which is good news for you and me isn't it Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners I know Paul says it but I feel like I'm chief man <laughs> people like you and me Jesus gave his life to reveal the fact that God loves you he loves you so much that he gave his son for you so where does this go um, well this has to go somewhere so much more than just recognition the heart of this time tonight is for this to move towards personal application, a personal reflection. In a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. You have some elements nearby. You want you to go ahead and grab those. Jesus, on the night before he was to be betrayed, he broke bread. He lifted it up, he blessed it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. He, he had a cup of wine there, and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. He invites us around a table to have a meal together, to reflect on what's been accomplished, to reflect on our redemption, our restoration, on the revelation of his love for us. 
Uh, but I want us to, instead of just kind of having a song, seeing the lyrics, and then taking together, I want us to, as you have those elements, I want you to hold them there. And I want you to go to the cross and you right now. That's where you need to go. The cross and you. You, you need to go to Mark 15 and you. And four questions you'll have up here on the screen for you to reflect on. Number one, what sins in your life do you need to take ownership of, repent of, and confess to the Lord right now? He knows them. You're not surprising him. What sins? Second question, what are the failures, the faults, the sin and mistakes in your life that need to be, listen, consciously washed by the blood of Jesus. Meaning you need to see those sins as washed by the blood of Jesus. We can be really good theologians and really distant sons and daughters of God. What sins need to be washed by the blood of Jesus? Meaning in him is forgiveness of sins. Allow that to be true over those sins. Third question is, what obstacles are keeping you from living out of and into a completely restored relationship with God as your father? I mean, you're, you're a son and daughter of God through Jesus. What obstacles are keeping you from living into that? I mean, if God's your father, take advantage, right? So what's keeping you from a relationship with God the Father? And then lastly... What aspect of God's heart towards you, about his character, what does the cross assure you of about him? What does it just solidify? Like you've been wrestling about how he really feels. You're unsure if he really loves you. You're unsure if he's really good. You're unsure if he is actually gracious enough to keep forgiving you. If his mercy and power is strong enough, how does a look at the cross solidify all that? How does the cross convince you by revealing to you who God really is. And here's how we're going to do this. we got four, a four-minute moment. For every minute, one of those questions with the scripture is going to be up on the screen. And this is a time for you and Jesus to reflect on those questions. I'll come up together at the, uh, at the end, and together we'll take the elements. Let's have a posture of humility before the Lord together as we reflect on the cross. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.